people are traumatized. There are thousands of blue tarps on homes in Puerto Rico two years after Hurricane Maria. And today we have houses that are falling apart because of the tremors that are hitting our island. The trembling is happening all the time. Puerto Rico sits between two fault lines. We have families that are sleeping outside. We have kids and children without water or a school to go to. The central government does not have the capacity to be able to deal with this type of situation. It was the governor that admitted there is no emergency plan for earthquakes. This is where stateside, we have to exercise our social capital, our political capital, and our conscience. It is no time to just watch the news. It is no time to just say, I will pray for my family, or I hope that they are okay. Today we must do something, and it is time for action. Hi, everyone. That was Cristina Pasiones-Zayas and Jesse Fuentes, co-chairs of the Puerto Rican Agenda, at a press conference announcing the reactivation of the Chicago Puerto Rican Agenda's 3Rs campaign for earthquake relief. Since December 28, 2019, close to 1,300 earthquakes have hit Puerto Rico, with the largest being a 6.4 magnitude quake. In response, Chicago's Puerto Rican agenda has reactivated their 3Rs campaign to rescue, bring relief, and rebuild the hardest hit parts of La Isla. Learn more about and or donate what you can to the 3Rs campaign at PuertoRicanChicago.org. Again, that's PuertoRicanChicago.org. Welcome, you are now listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. Listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smezer de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the Diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. On today's episode of the Paseo Podcast, we welcome back to the show the Executive Director of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center in Chicago, Jose Lopez. We also welcome tenured professor at Stanford University, Dr. Jonathan Rosa. Today, we are going to discuss the organizing mindset of community as a campus. I first heard about this outlook on community when volunteering here on Paseo Boricua. As a kid, I always knew that there was something about Paseo Boricua beyond solely the 59-feet banderas that bookend it. What this mindset has allowed the Puerto Rican community to accomplish here in Chicago is astounding. Oftentimes, whether you are a homeowner, renter, nonprofit organization, or even a small business, we can get stuck in the trap of looking at ours and others' existence in a community as siloed entities. What community as a campus presents is more of a wicker basket mentality, where we are all intertwined and need each other to build a vibrant community that works for and serves all people within it. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center has looked at community through this lens, and that has led Paseo Boricua to be what it is today. 
We have art that speaks to our culture. Paseo Boricua has one of the largest concentrations of murals in Chicago. The huge steel banderas are the largest monument to a flag in the world. Our National Puerto Rican History Museum holds the largest collection of Puerto Rican art in the world. And we even have a Puerto Rican Walk of Fame. The community has organized to keep and uplift small businesses. Nonprofits here work to address things like affordable housing, shelter for people in the LGBTQIA community, local theater that showcases POC stories, sanctuary for migrants, and a whole lot more. These things make me proud to be part of the Boricua community here in Chicago. So in our discussion, we're going to talk about community as a campus, as a way to explain what it is and why it matters. If you enjoy what you hear, help me spread the word and tell a friend about the show. Let's jump into the interview. This is the Paseo Podcast. We are here in the Puerto Rican Cultural Center Studios in Paseo Boricua in Chicago, Illinois. I am here with two guests, Jose Lopez and Jonathan Rosa. Could you both introduce yourselves for our audience? Jose, let's start with you. I'm uh, Jose Lopez. I am the executive director of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. I am Jonathan Rosa. I'm a faculty member at Stanford University and a longtime collaborator of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. So the topic of today's episode is community as a campus. And on our pilot, Jose, you and I talked about Paseo Boricua and kind of that community as a campus mindset when it comes to building and uplifting a community. Um, but I, I want to start with you, Jonathan. You contributed a chapter in a book, Community as a Campus, From Problems to Possibilities in Latinx Communities. What is community as a campus? So community as a campus is a model that was created here on Paseo Boricua, I think, for rethinking educational possibilities in ways that challenge prevailing mainstream assumptions about where learning takes place, how learning takes place, who is a teacher, and what the goal of learning is. So community as a campus for me is a project of Community transformation is a, a project of understanding how learning is happening everywhere, how it's fundamental to human experience, even in ways that we've defined it as something that only exists in a mainstream school or in a mainstream classroom with a mainstream designated teacher or administrator, and then other people designated as students, this kind of thing. So wait, what if teachers are everywhere? What if our, fa our families and communities are our teachers? What if these infrastructures are teachers in certain ways? And so um, this model, I think, was inspired by a, the, a, a long-standing set of political projects here on Paseo Boricua that, you know, of course, Jose can speak to in much greater detail than I can. But, you know, when I came here as a graduate student at the University of Chicago, I think part of the idea was, oh, okay, you know, he does his, his studies at the University of Chicago, and then he comes to the community to do political work or applied work. And for me, that was never the case in any straightforward way. I was learning as much theory, if not more, here on Paseo Boricua and my work with various kinds of community initiatives as I was learning at the University of Chicago. And so I think this idea that a community is an intellectual space and is a profound site for realizing local and broader 
societal possibilities is is exciting to me. Um, so yeah, that's part of what inspired me to write that that chapter, which is sort of building from that community as a campus approach to think about some projects that I've done elsewhere uh, that were bringing my university students together with high school students um, and, and projects towards community transformation. Jose, what about you? What is community as a campus? Well, I, I think that um, Jonathan articulated it very well. It's really a way of rethinking education. And I think when um, we think about the process that in terms of the practices of the cultural center informed by the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-reliance, we must really uh, think about as a decolonizing model of community organizing and community building. And in that process, we then have to think about sort of the canons of knowledge and how our schools and universities are created in such a way that they are the producers and the creators of knowledge. And the communities are sort of um, by the wayside, they're not important. But more importantly, it's the vision that you're trying to um, create for young people that what they need to do is to leave the community to um, sort of detach themselves from this reality because this is a, an ahistorical and a alienating process. Instead, what we wanted to do was to put the community at front and center as a site of the production, reproduction, and even the creation of knowledge. And so for us, the idea of community as a campus is to talk about community as intellectual space. And that means that the most teachers in Chicago, so if I go back to what informed our work in the 1960s around education, it was the idea that after a study that I uh, participated as a, a research assistant, a study on Puerto Rican dropouts, which was published in 1970, in that study, uh, we came to two conclusions. One is 72.9% of the Puerto Rican students who entered the Chicago public high schools dropped out. But the other was the theme that they inform us about why they were dropping out. Teachers hear us, they don't listen to us. What does that speak to? To the very idea that teachers go into a school, into most urban schools. All they know is I go to this building, I park my car in the parking lot, I go into this building, I have no idea of what goes around me. I have no idea of the assets of that community. I have no idea of the rich cultural heritage inherent in that community. I have no idea of the problems as well as the possibilities of that community. So for us, it was a way to rethink education, but also not only to hold the schools responsible as an institution, to hold the community responsible. And so that meant that we needed to bring literally the uh, harness, the social capital of the community around the schools. So a young person who has been alienated and who has been taught that he's not worthy or she's not worthy to be listened to, in actual fact, begins to find a community of people 
that's supporting them, that is providing them with the social, emotional um, necessities to be able to undertake the journey of learning. But that the journey of learning does not happen in that school. It happens in the community as well. And the journey of learning is how do I understand the world about me, act responsibly upon that world, and transform the world, which is really what freedom is all about. And education should be an act of freedom itself. So that's what I would say from a theoretical perspective, community as a campus means. When I look at Paseo Boricua, I feel like Paseo Boricua exemplifies that mindset, that community as a campus mindset. Are there any other communities that you feel use that same model? I would say that in a lot of places, there probably are practices in which people are challenging the paradigm of how we do schooling. And I, I think all over the country, there have been experiments, there have been practices that I think inform that. I, I don't know um, of a community that has done this kind of intentional kind of work. So there's a lot of um, practice to go around in terms of um, let's say educators who dedicate themselves to really rethinking schools. Um, there are efforts of community, let's say um, organizing efforts that are undertaking. I know, for example, you could argue that in the last strike, the um, CTU uh, undertook a series of questions about calling into question the idea of homelessness and in, in, in questions that begin to address the young people and their needs. I think this is one of the first time that they've done that. But even CTU uh, ultimately is informed on how an all union, rightfully so, protect the rights of teachers mm -hmm. and all unions protect the rights of workers. Um, I believe that the question here is who really protects the rights of the young people and the rights of a community? Mm -hmm. And that to me is the broader question that we have to deal with. And I think that's why when I talked about a decolonizing concept, it really has to be focused on a broader community um, and a broader concept of community building. So it's not about demanding um, changes in a school, which I believe rightfully so, um, not demanding changes in a school system, is recreating a whole mindset about the very idea of knowledge, the very idea of what success means for young people in our community, all of those things. So did this community as a campus outlook stem from what you were seeing in schools solely, or were there other things you were seeing in the 60s and 70s that made you think, we, we need to start rethinking not only what's happening in the schools, but the businesses that are here on Paseo or the nonprofits that exist, the needs that are being addressed. Like, can you walk me through? Was it just well, was it just schooling? And then you were like, OK, we need to do okay. because that that would be what a community organizer does. Mm -hmm. It's focused on single issue politics. Mm. Our work has never been focused on single issue politics. We began with the idea that you approach community organizing from the perspective of community building. Many groups exist around the issue of community organizing. They're not really 
looking at those problems from a holistic perspective. I think through community organizing must, must be focused on community building. And then you're looking at the larger context in which problems intersect. They're not isolated. The housing problem is not isolated from the educational problems, from the health problems, from the cultural issues. All of those must intersect. And so for me, anything that's really profoundly uh, addressing structural issues must also address a holistic approach. So it must be holistic in, um, in terms of uh, content and organic in terms of form. So Jonathan, in your chapter, what were some of the examples you pointed to as benefits of having a community as a campus mindset? Sure. Well, let me go back to, to draw a few connections between yeah. um, some of the questions you were asking and some of what Jose was saying mm -hmm. as well. First, in terms of the decolonial frame that Jose presented, I think part of what's important about that perspective is saying, wait, on one level, what's happening here? in Chicago, on Paseo Boricua, to Puerto Ricans, or what has been happening to Puerto Ricans is really specific and particular. On another level, there are millions of people the world over who are experiencing related forms of marginalization. And so there are various populations who, out of necessity, have never not... So when you ask, are there other communities where people are doing this work? Everywhere, everywhere where marginalized, colonized people exist, the very act of education has required people to create alternative institutions and alternative possibilities for themselves. So black and indigenous populations the world over have been faced with this challenge of how to create their own institutions. Now the project of community building is, I think, a, a, a bigger question. Um, so as, as compared to just say, creating your own school. Mm -hmm. And you know, even here in Chicago, Elizabeth Todd Breland just published a book um, titled A Political Education, which looks at African-American struggles around education in the late 20th century and looks at efforts towards community-controlled schools, Afrocentric schools. So even here locally in the city of Chicago, we see a history of community struggle in, among different populations around education. We see this in Little Village and in Pilsen, um, the creation, the hunger strike that led to the creation of a school. These struggles happen all over the city, all over the country, and all over the world. That's one piece. And I taught at Pedro Alviso Campos High School. I taught civics. And one of the things that was really interesting to me was as a teacher in that space, I would meet in the main high school building on California and Division. But my class met in Villa Sida, in the health center, in the in one of the rooms in the health center. So in order to to move from one space to another, we didn't we, the, the, the school wasn't an isolated building that's separate from the rest of the community where you go from classroom to classroom and the school is its own world. The community is the world of the school. So our hallways were the sidewalks of the street of the neighborhood where we are the storefronts are the classrooms. This involves brokering with lots of different business owners, frankly, brokering with gang organizations in the community to say, we're all a part of this. We live here for all of the challenges that we're facing. And this requires us to figure out whether we're committed 
you know, to supporting young people in this community. So the principal of the high school would broker with local gang organizations to ensure the safety. So the very organizations that are understood as the, the biggest problems in the community are then brought into the conversation around educational development and support and youth development. And as Jose was suggesting, the fact that my class met, it was a civics class that met in the, the, a, a community health center, which is geared towards the HIV AIDS crisis among the Puerto Rican population, which is an extreme kind of crisis historically for Puerto Ricans and African-Americans in the United States, especially, and, and Chicago's Puerto Rican community has, you know, organized around this issue for decades now, it, prior to when other organizations were responding to this in a, a collective way. I think the fact that my class met in this space mm. is tied to that history as well. So you have all of these different sorts of factors or, or experiences in the community that get intertwined. I think Jose in many ways often talks about this as a, a, a social ecology approach to thinking about different challenges that we're facing and different possibilities that exist for creating an, an alternative neighborhood and an alternative world and alternative institutions within um, each of those spaces. So the it's exciting to sort of think about this globally, but just locally, my experience as a teacher in this space where my co-teacher was a community poet, Judy Diaz, who also was an administrator at the school, and then is my co-facilitator of a civics class. And so, you know, the idea of who a teacher is and what expertise you bring to bear. And in that space, we had kids who in another school would be designated as English language learners or a Spanish dominant and who had just arrived from Puerto Rico, for example, a couple of months ago and were quote unquote Spanish dominant and would typically be separated and kept in a separate classroom where they were learning transitional bilingual education and didn't even have access to the mainstream curriculum. And yet in this space, we learned together and that multilingualism was not a crisis because it was all of our realities. It was Judy's reality, my reality, and all of the students' realities. And so these issues that are presented or framed as problems in mainstream educational context and institutional context more broadly, I think from this community-based perspective are profound possibilities for creating different kinds of institutions. In engaging in this exchange of classes, which takes place at Pedro Alviso Campos, one of the things is to deal, obviously, with a lot of issues. So when he talks about Vida Sida, you're also talking about what is Vida Sida? What is the history of Vida Sida? And then it really begins to delve into issues why did we create Vida Sida? And that had to do a lot with the AIDS epidemic in our community in the late 80s, but also having to deal with the stigma that was attached to AIDS in the community um, around the idea that it was a gay disease. Mm. And so we had to take on the issue of homophobia. Our students in that space have to be able to deal with that as well. When they go into a space and they see a building called El Rescate, where we have HIV, uh, I mean, uh, young people who have been thrown out of their homes because they are LGBTQ, it also raises, well, what, you know, what are we dealing with here and why do we have to deal with this? So you're raising social issues that are profound in every community and putting those within the context of the broader vision about community building. When you see in our parade, when the young kids at Pedro Albizu Campos 
um, carry, participate in the parade, they're seeing that our parade has a casica who's a transgender woman, and you celebrate this woman. So there are so many things that are being raised in the community. Just the issue of the undocumented. When our students cross the street, they're near, right in front of Adalberto United Methodist Church, the only space in the United States that had for the, almost the 12, the, the following 12 years has maintained an undocumented person in a space, in a safe space, in a sanctuary space. The, they have to grapple with the issue of the undocumented. So when we look at sort of issues that even transcend what people think are identity issues, it's all there. So I think that our young people have to grapple with a lot of issues that no other place uh, where they're confronted daily and they have to make that part of their own learning experience. When our young people participate in beautifying this community in the beginning towards the end of spring and they plant 48 planters with with flowers for the entire summer with kids from Roberto Clemente High School. There's an amazing fraternity and sisterhood that's created there. So on every level, when our kids um, interact with the children in the childcare, in our childcare, they, and our young mothers and fathers who are teenage mothers have their kids in there because they're provided with and um, an educational setting for their own kids, that's a very powerful statement about, obviously, their relationship to their own kids and their responsibility with the youngsters in this community. When our kids walk down the street and go and have to deal with the elderly people and, and obviously have to see elderly Puerto Ricans at Teresa Roldan, that also raises the idea of who makes up a community. What does age have to do with that? So there are so many issues that our young people are exposed to just in a, in a, in a matter of two or three blocks that would take a university uh, to be able to deal with all of those learning experiences. So I, I think that's the idea of, part of the idea of community as a campus. Um, so I, I, I think it's really important that we look at how a community is really the center of intellectual production. Part of what's interesting to me or so compelling about locating this discussion within a colonial framework or a decolonial, decolonizing framework is to say part of the violence of colonialism is telling someone you have no history, you have no value. The point of our mainstream institutions, of a school, of a place like the United States is to give you an identity. And that's where you become a real person. That's where we make you into someone of worth. And, and your worth is based on your accumulation of normatively defined knowledge. So your, your achievement or your lack of achievement. And that's where we define whether you, you become a real person in the United States based on the kind of labor that you will then participate in. So schools as mm -hmm. sites where we reproduce the, the political economy, where you have you know a very small sector of the population that participates in a knowledge economy, a vast majority that doesn't fare as well in school and is slated for participation in a service sector mm -hmm. economy um, or exclusion from the formal economy altogether. That's schools. That's schooling for you. So think about a decolonial framework that says, wait a second, who is this young person 
And what's it mean for you to locate yourself in relation to this history of the history of this community? How did your family get here? How did this institution like Vida Sida, like this high school, like those flags, like the planter boxes, like the names of these spaces, what, what histories did they honor and how are you a part of those histories? Mm -hmm. So the, the profound opportunity for me as a civics teacher in a community like this is to say, wait, in a regular, in a typical civics class, we would learn about citizenship abstractly in the United States. We would learn about the branches of government. We would learn about federalism. Think about the opportunity to teach about that topic with a group of, of uh, Latinx students and especially of Puerto Rican students, the chance to teach about citizenship. You think Puerto Ricans don't know things about citizenship? We're profoundly sort of, I think, sensitive to the, the contradictions of American, of colonial, any kind of colonial citizenship. And so a, a community as a campus approach is also, I think, about challenging these historical narratives that frame certain populations or deny certain populations their history and saying, wait a second, by, by reproducing that kind of a denial, we continually prevent ourselves from becoming a, a different society altogether. And, and so it's a chance to say, by relocating yourself in history, you create new future possibilities. I want, I want to sort of situate um, our high school in the context of what was happening in the late 60s and 70s. So the Black Panthers began to create a whole series of alternative institutions. And it's interesting, when we think about providing breakfast in the schools for kids, nobody was talking about giving breakfast to kids in school, except the Black Panthers. But the Black Panthers were not alone. There were practices in Pine Ridge Reservation that I visited um, that I saw what Native Americans were doing in terms of creating alternative and parallel institutions. Um, the Crusade for Justice in Denver had an amazing practice of parallel institutions. They developed a school very similar to ours, that the local in, in Denver, an amazing school that taught the history of the Mexicans from an indigenous perspective, from the idea that Mexico, that part of the, of the United States was one part of Mexico, that there was conquered territory. I, I remember being in those classrooms and hearing that discussion, very similar to what we were doing at um, Pedro Albizu Campos. I mean, I, I went to Tierra Amarilla in, in northern New Mexico in uh, the Sangre de Cristo Mountains and saw the experiment of um, the land grant movement there and the idea to establish alternative institutions like a, a clinic that served the people uh, in Tierra Amarilla. As we joined um, much of the Chicano movement in this country, we saw those things happening. Now, what happened to that is that those practices, because of the intensity and the uh, intentionality of the FBI's COINTEL program, they literally did away with most of those practices. What I think gave us the possibilities of being able to survive that, that um, incredible political repression was our ability to fundamentally root ourselves in a community that really wrapped itself around us and said, no, you're not going to destroy this effort. And we have survived that. We're talking about uh, in 2022, celebrating 50 years of the founding of our high school. And the Chicago Tribune just did two 
uh, editorials in the last month focusing on the practice of our high school as the best practice for addressing at-risk youth in the urban setting. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. time but you talked about the importance of the, sc- the schooling system working with young people getting them to think outside of this very siloed mindset almost where we otherize entire populations or groups of people or neighborhoods etc how do you convince your peers that have bought into these very historical narratives about entire populations or how a community is supposed to be structured how do you challenge in a way that's productive so that you get buy-in from people that are of an older generation than those that are in school right now? Language is actually a really interesting tool for me to use in these discussions about challenging prevailing assumptions about where the problem lives, uh, whether the problem lives within these kids, these at-risk youth, these communities. And what you say is, wait, how did we get to this situation in the United States where you have multilingual kids, families, and communities that are framed as linguistic problems from the perspective of monolingual teachers, administrators, and policymakers? So how do monolingual people come to perceive multilingual people as in need of linguistic help? of linguistic assistance from a school. And who is it that's in need of assistance? These kids and communities or this society? So where do you locate the, the illness here that needs to be addressed? And I think when you frame the discussion, so often when I enter schools, they say, oh, you're a linguistic anthropologist. This is great. We have a problem with language in our schools. Tell us what to do. And I say, wait, language isn't a problem for humans. To the extent that you experience it as a problem, that tells us much more about your school than it tells us about language. So I'm interested in understanding how your institution has produced a problem. Um, that you then come to perceive as living within people rather than within your institution. And so once we frame things in, in that kind of a way, I think it opens up a possibility to say, wait, maybe there are skills that exist everywhere here. Maybe there are resources that exist everywhere here. Maybe there are possibilities for an alternative approach that exist everywhere here that we haven't been attentive to. And so I think the, the op-ed that you're describing, I mean, part of what's so exciting about working in a community like this is almost, and we, we talked about this at a symposium a couple months ago, as an educational research and a language researcher, you're sort of, you know, I I was teaching here and, and learning about things that were happening here historically, and you're almost waiting for the world to catch up. 
And so often it's in 10 years or in 15 years or in 20 years when people discover ethnic studies projects that people have been working on for the better part of a century at this point and saying, wait, we need community oriented education that responds to the local ecology, that responds to local experiences. And so a lot of the projects that we're working on now, I think among my colleagues in, in the academy are things that people have been working on in communities for decades and decades and decades. And so, you know, I think uh, pointing to the ways that we've limited what we could do by misunderstanding the nature of the problem is one strategy that I, I use to to sort of point to what's possible. Jose, what about you? I would follow um, and echo what Jonathan just stated from the perspective of when we look at the issue of violence, when we look at the issues of our young people with mental illness, and we look at them as the problem. Instead of looking at the problem from that these young people are the byproducts of generational and historical trauma that is informed by a process of colonial exclusion. And so it's when you otherize and turn that young person into something that obviously is less than human, you've already created a very serious problem in him or in her, in her parents, in her grandparents, and this is passed on. And the way to escape is usually through addictions. It's usually people not being able to deal with those problems and turning to addiction to be able to grapple and, and come to grips with those problems. What we should be doing is looking at the history of resilience of those people. What has been the mechanisms that they have used to survive this incredible systemic violent conditions that have created that problem of post-traumatic syndrome? And let's look at what we need to learn from the process of resilience. And for me, it's very simple. All I have to do is what is one of the greatest lessons from the enslavement of black people in this country? One of the greatest lessons, I would say even in this continent, the enslavement of African people taught us that you could not take the humanity out of those people. Why not? Because today, if I look at this entire continent, there is almost no cultural production does not inform some elements that are deeply rooted in the African experience. So there is almost no musical experience in the entire continent of the Americas without African rhythms. Who kept those African rhythms alive in spite of the enslavement, in, in spite of the fact that you were supposed to forget everything, who you were, and we were transformed into a shadow, a working beast. At every moment, at every turn, those people transmitted historical memory and historical practices that ultimately end up in, main, in informing our, the sort of all the cultural production in these two continents. So for me, it's the resilience that African people, the native people on this continent have kept alive that speaks to the kind of projects that we should be creating that promote a 
a, a healing process through uh, an education that's a decolonizing education. I think attention to resilience is a very, requires a very careful project of both honoring communities' capacity to survive and to create in profoundly precarious conditions, while also not romanticizing exactly. the individual ability to survive as an end in itself. Right. And saying, wait, we also have a collective responsibility exactly. and various modes on various sort of political levels to say, this just sort of understanding that people are, are resilient doesn't abdicate the state in terms of its responsibility exactly. or doesn't allow, absolve the state of its responsibility right. in supporting people's wellness. And so while also not relying solely on the state and not assuming that the state will rescue you. And I think that's what we've seen in Puerto Rico right now, where people have kind of said, this is what, what Yarimar Bonilla calls hopeful pessimism, where people's understanding that the state is not going to rescue them has informed a range of practices of survivance and the creation of alternative infrastructures that shouldn't, I think, absolve the state either. Mm -hmm. And so it's that delicate project of recognizing resilience and survivance while also holding the state to account for its responsibility for, for supporting well-being. How can people stay connected with you both? Visit us in our webpage. We also publish a newspaper called La Voz del Paseo Boricua. If people are interested in my ideas or my work, you can follow me on social media, on Twitter. This kind of thing is where I offer my regular commentary on race, language, education, and then whatever I'm, I'm eating or watching or complaining about. Definitely, a Twitter, definitely a Twitter feed uh, worth following, for sure. I follow you on Twitter. Um, what are your handles on Twitter and Twitter Facebook? is Dr. Jonathan Rosa. Okay. And then did you say Facebook as well? Or I don't say, do oh, no, 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 no. Facebook. El Face doesn't work for me anymore. El Face, Listen, okay. I need some distance from that. that so just platform. Twitter. Just Twitter. Just Twitter. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for being on the podcast. Special thanks to Jonathan Rosa and Jose Lopez for coming on the show today. To begin each month, we're going to start a new segment of the podcast where I read listener comments. We don't have a name for this segment yet, and that's on purpose. I want to put the power in your hands. For the rest of March, send in your name suggestions for this segment of the show. You can let us know your name ideas by messaging us or commenting on our Facebook and Twitter pages at Baseo Podcast. You can also email us at baseopodcast at gmail.com. At the beginning of April, we'll unveil the new name of this segment. So here are a few listener comments I have for this month. The first listener comment is from at Southern Bell VA on Twitter. After listening to episode 22 with our guest Jaiku Niosh, they wrote, just listened to this episode and it was spectacular. Sent a long text to Jai about everything I loved. Also rated and reviewed you. Five stars, of course, on iTunes. Keep up the amazing work. You've got a new listener in me. Thanks for listening and for the five-star rating at Southern Bell VA. If you haven't rated us on whatever platform you listen to us on, please do that after listening to this episode. It makes a difference and helps us get the word out about the podcast. If you've already rated us, help us spread the word by inviting your friends and family to listen. This next one is an email from Lauren. Lauren says, I'm driving back from Kansas and have made your podcast the soundtrack of my journey. It is helping me stay alert and informing me about all this great stuff going on in my neighborhood. Hadn't had a chance to delve in until now, but it's all very interesting. Keep it up. Thanks for listening, Lauren. I hope we got you home safe. The last one I want to share was a comment made on our website, baseomedia.org. 
It is from Nadia in response to episode 14 with Urban Pilon chef Roberto Perez. Nadia wrote, I loved this episode. I always see Roberto around. I love his food, have not had the chance to take his classes, but I look forward to bringing my daughter and learning more of the history behind our food. Thanks for the episode. That's awesome, Nadia. I hope you get a chance to take one of those classes in the future. That's all the comments I wanted to share for this month. You can keep those positive vibes coming by commenting on our website, baseomedia.org, tweeting us or commenting on our Twitter and Facebook at Baseo Podcast, and emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com. Next week's episode of the Paseo Podcast will be a bit of a toss-up. March 17th is Election Day here in Chicago, so I am working on booking Boricuas running for public office here in the city. If that does not work out, it's still going to be a dope episode. I think you'll really enjoy the guest I have lined up. Here's a hint. They are a comic book writer from New York City. They have worked on projects for powerhouses like DC, Marvel, and Image Comics. So, Stay tuned for that announcement in the coming days. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment. We love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode and see you next week. Cuídate.